Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. Tuesday, October 11th, 2016 is the date. It's 10 p.m. on the East Coast. It's 7 p.m. here in sunny California, which you may or may not be aware is my new home base. Life has indeed taken a couple of funny turns since last we convened here together, uh, but I'm thrilled beyond belief to be back on the air and ecstatic to be back with an A1 number one stunner tonight. As I record this, the soap world and we fans of it are still reeling from the untimely passing of one of the form's few pioneers, the astonishingly glorious Agnes Nixon, who shuffled off of this mortal coil a couple of weeks ago at the age of 93. You know, I do not intend to bore you now with a litany of all of Lady Agnes's accomplishments in the world of television, which you no doubt already know are numerous. But let's all agree to agree that the two most towering achievements on Miss Nixon's resume are her creation in 1970 of All My Children and her creation in 1968 of my personal and forever fave One Life to Live, the latter of which kept my guest tonight employed for just shy of 41 uninterrupted years. You know I'm talking about the honorary queen of Landview, the peerless Erica Slezak. So, you know, this interview, this conversation is a bit more personal to me than is typical here for reasons that I will elucidate for you directly. You know, if you're not a regular listener to this program, I don't know what the hell you've been waiting for exactly. But if you are a regular listener, then you know well that One Life to Live was my show and that I've spent a non-trivial percentage of the past eight years and 100 episodes marking and celebrating that show with the help of such folks as Bob Krimmer and Laura Bonarigo. Eileen Kristen, Brett Claywell, Jessica Tuck, the fabulous Hillary Bailey Smith, Kale Brown, Sharon Gabbett, Susie Betsa Horgan, Linda Dano, so many more. Seriously, if you are new around here and you're a One Life fanatic as I am and was, uh, I strongly encourage you to check out the archives at the website or on iTunes. You'll find a trove of entertaining conversations awaiting you there. But, you know, that show, One Life to Live, was most seriously everything, and it meant everything to me. Uh, for the entire quarter of a century that I watched it. And because all roads in Landview, essentially one way or another, by hook or by crook, led straight back to Miss Victoria Lord, Riley Burke, Buchanan, Carpenter, Davidson, Banks, Buchanan, that means that Erica Slezak, the queen, honey, the most decorated, the most decorated actress in daytime television history, with six Emmy wins and nine nominations, was and is most seriously everything. 
and has meant everything to me for the whole of that time. You know, I started watching One Life the summer I turned 12 years old, and I know this is going to sound like an odd thing for me to say, but for much of that time, I always felt some sort of odd connection to Erica, some sort of strange, inexplicable kinship with not just Vicky so much, but with Erica. You know, of course, I recognize what an odd, if not downright arrogant thing that is to say about a kid watching a soap opera, but it is nonetheless true. It would be many years down the road before I would discover that Erica and I do indeed share a very painful event in common in our respective life stories. We are both, she and I, survivors of a parental suicide. It's not something that I talk about much in my day-to-day life for obvious reasons, and though I've sort of talked around it a number of times through 100 episodes of Brandon's Buzz, it's not really something that I've discussed frankly or had any real desire to discuss on this program. (laughs) Frankly, I wasn't sure if Erica was interested in discussing it either. As a matter of fact, I made clear to her off the record that if she didn't wish to talk about it, I would in no way push it. Nor was I sure if I would even have the temerity to bring it up at all in the course of our conversation. But the fact of the matter is, it remains a fascinating point of connection between myself and a woman for whom I have felt nothing short of profound admiration for much, for most of my life. Erica was already well into adulthood when her father, the Tony-winning actor Walter Slezak, took his own life in 1983, and I was 12 years old when I lost my mother in 1988. I had begun watching One Life to Live in June of that year on a lark, based on a blurb about the show's instantly infamous faux-beau storyline in Soap Opera Digest that happened to catch my attention. It was batshit insane, that storyline and the whole rest of the show, really. It was crazy. The stories, the fashions, the hair, child Andrea Evans' bosom alone was crazy. It was over the top. It was devoid of things like logic and good sense. It took me about two episodes to get hooked for life. I lost my mother in September of that year. I won't depress you more than I already have with the specifics of all of that, but may it suffice to say yours truly's life got a little intense after that. I was packed up and sent to live with my father and stepmother and new half-sister, and though those relationships each eventually evolved into something quite beautiful. Let's just say the entire dynamic was extremely tense at first. In the middle of such a horrendous emotional maelstrom, one life to live quickly became, for me, a lifeline, a godsend. It has long since passed into cliché, this idea that the viewers who get sucked into watching soap operas on a daily basis do so in part to forget about their own troubles for an hour a day, for two hours a day, for an afternoon at a time. You can call it cliché all you like, but in my case, you can also call it true. That first year or so beyond my mother's suicide remains a giant blur inside my brain, but I can still, to this minute, tell you every single thing that happened on One Life to Live that year because I clung to that show every fucking day. That show was a life raft for me, and I held on to it for dear life every single goddamn day. You know, funny enough, that fall on One Life to Live, Erica Slezak's character, Vicky, was embarking on a search for her long-lost daughter. It's a long, crazy story, naturally, but the thrust of it was that when Vicky was a senior in high school many years prior, she got pregnant by a young man who lived in an underground city. Remember, I told you, in the year of our Lord, 1988, that show was batshit insane. Uh, and her rich father, rich and powerful father, Victor Lord, spirited the baby away once she was born and then essentially had Vicky hypnotized into forgetting all about the entire episode. Queen that she is, Erica played every beat of this wacky, wild storyline like it sprung straight from Tolstoy's pen. And she had me entranced, honey. Vicky was looking for a daughter, 
in the exact same season that I was looking for a mother, Erica had me from jump. You know, I tell you all of that to say that I've been holding this interview in my back pocket for a little while now. An opportunity to converse with Erica fell into my lap in September of 2012, four years ago, uh, after the ABC cancellation, but before the on-again, off-again Prospect Park revival was on again. And I left at the chance. You know, we had a fabulous conversation at that time. We gabbed for something like 90 minutes about Erica's early life, about all that I just told you regarding our respective family histories, and a lot about her four decades roaming the earth wearing Victoria Lord's shoes. Unfortunately, that day, we both did a poor job budgeting our time within the interview. Erica had not properly gauged the, uh, the, let's say the power and profundity of my undying 25-year obsession with her, and as such, had not anticipated that she and I would actually have 90 minutes worth of discussion topics between us. And she had a hard out for a prior engagement that she did not warn me about beforehand, because as she told me, she never dreamed that we would end up talking for as long as we did. So as a result, that first interview just sort of ended abruptly. Uh, I at first had thought that I would just edit the episode in such a fashion that it didn't seem to just go off the side of a cliff, but that proved to be more difficult a task than I anticipated. And furthermore, as I listened to the playback to begin the editing process, uh, I came quickly to appreciate just how deeply personal we had gotten in the course of our conversation with regard to our similar brushes with familial tragedy. And even though that topic, as it were, uh, made up a relatively minor chunk of our overall chat, I began to have extreme second, third, and fourth thoughts about just exactly how much of my own personal story and experience I was comfortable sharing on this platform. And sure, I could have simply edited out that entire passage of our conversation, but I found Erica's memories of that chapter in her life to be so compelling and so powerful, and I had a sense that many other of her fans would feel the exact same way. So I ultimately just decided to kind of tuck this entire project away up on the top shelf for a spell. I did not anticipate letting four years pass before revisiting this, but alas, that's exactly how we got from there to here. I'm not exactly sure why I could never work up the nerve to just email Erica again and request a follow-up interview. And the best answer I can come up with right this second is, it's because she's Erica Slezak and I'm uh, not. But sometime near the end of August of this year, I finally, finally decided that I was ready to share this with the world, and I got brave and wrote Erica an email humbly requesting that she allow me to revisit our first conversation from four years ago and give that conversation the proper ending I felt it deserved. She wrote back with an extremely enthusiastic and lovely yes, which of course immediately made me wonder why I had been so damn nervous in the first place about you know reaching out to her again. And a few weeks ago, we chatted for another 65 or 70 minutes in which time she went in-depth with me about the cancellation of One Life, the untimely passing of her former executive producer, Paul Rausch, and her candid feelings about the ill-fated, blink-and-you-missed-it online reboot of the show, which was spearheaded by Prospect Park. All of that I'm going to play for you tomorrow night in part two of this rare conversation with an undisputed, unparalleled legend. You know, I had originally thought that I would just fuse the two interview pieces together into one seamless episode and call it done, but listening to the final edit, I have decided that it's really more interesting and more fulfilling as two distinct episodes, since we cover so much ground in terms of her life and career. So, ergo, tonight we set the table with a prelude. We know where Erica Slezak ended up, an Emmy winner six times over, arguably the most dignified, most respected actress, certainly one of a mere handful anyway, in the history of daytime television. Tonight, Erica's going to pull back the curtain on her early life about how she was raised, 
about how she honed her talent in the shadow of a brilliant father whom she utterly adored, and about how she, fortunately for us all, came to be hired as Victoria Lord on One Life to Live some 45 fortuitous years ago. Well, I tell you, I've been a fan of yours for years for than either of us would care to think about, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. <laughs> no, that's fine, and I did get that from your email. It was very, very nice. Thank you. So why don't we uh, why don't we set the table here? Tell me where you were born, where you were, you were raised, where'd you go to school? Let's get that stuff out of the way. Oh, I was born in Hollywood, California, Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. My father was an actor. His name was Walter Slays. Absolutely, he was a very successful actor, and we lived in Los Angeles when I was a very little girl. And then he started doing Broadway, and he decided after the second show, we, we, when he did My Three Angels, I think it was 1952 or 53, we all came for the duration of the run, and then we went back to California. And at that point, I think he decided that he really didn't think Los Angeles or Hollywood was the place to raise kids, <laughs> make them be sensible, grown-up human beings. And so he loved doing the stage. And when he did Fanny in 1950, 50, somewhere around there, he said, okay, let's move if the show is a hit. And the show was a hit. And my poor mother... <laughs> In California with three children, various dogs, cats, turtles, and a nanny, he called and he said, okay, Joe's a hit, come on. Wow. And she, well, she had been there for the opening, obviously, but she flew back. She had to sell the house, pack up everything, and come cross-country with the entire lot of us. Anyway, we arrived in New York. And and you, you were how old at this time? I'm guessing I was about eight or nine. So you were old enough to have friends and, and have you know a bit of a burgeoning life in California. Yeah, not. Re- I don't really remember much of it. Okay. I, you know, I, I'm sure we did have friends. I have photographs of us with other children, but I don't remember any of them. And I went to school there. I went to St. Victor's. But when we packed up and moved, that was that, that was, was that. And I don't think I was terribly unhappy as long as I had my family around me. Sure. I did. And we arrived in New York, and we lived in New York City till the end of the school year. And then my father and mother said, time to move out into the suburbs and live a nice life out there. <laughs> and we did. We moved to Larchmont. And while I was in the seventh grade there, near the end of the year, my mother got a call, please come to school. And she thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and the principal said, look, we, we've got a very, very, very big seventh grade class, and we would like to move some children into the eighth grade. And my mother said, yeah, and they said, your daughter and two other people, we would like to move them into the eighth grade and wow. graduate. And I think, you know, my mother spoke to me, and she said, do you want to do that? And I went, yeah, sure, I'm out of school a year <laughs> earlier, why not? Not realizing I had to quick do all of eighth grade in about three months. Absolutely. And I did. I started going to the eighth grade classes and had an awful lot of work to catch up on. Unfortunately, I missed all of the end of seventh grade. So I never learned anything about the Civil War <laughs> or a whole a whole section of history that I never learned about. But I graduated eighth grade. Not to mention then, the not to mention the socialization and, and you know all the Well that too, because of the eighth graders were not overly of course, kind. Of course. And, you know, didn't sort of say, Oh great, you know, come come with us they said, Oh, these are smart kids, you know <laughs> And that's not exactly the age of, of, of understanding no, it's and not. Yeah. <laughs> So I ended up going to where my sister was in school at that point, which was a convent of the Sacred Heart. It was a five-day boarding. 
uh, up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And again, I had the choice, where do you want to go to school? And I said, oh, I want to go there. And it was five-day boarding, and we had uh, a great time. But it was very difficult for me because I was a full year younger than everyone else in freshman year of high school, which is very important. You know, you ever kissed a boy? I went, no. (laughs) You know, um, I was only barely 13, and everyone else was 14. Sure. So it really took the whole year for me to get comfortable. But I made friends, and I then had some friends. And I stayed there for three years until my senior year when my mother and father were away a lot of the year. My father was doing a lecture tour. And so they said, you know, five-day boarding, you can go home and be with the maid every weekend. But, you know, and, and, you know, she was lovely. But, you know, perhaps she'd rather go somewhere else. And my sister had spent her senior year at Eden Hall, which was the Sacred Heart School outside of Philadelphia. And I said, no, I'd like to go there. Obviously, I followed my sister everywhere. Uh, Of course. And I spent my senior year at Eden Hall, probably the happiest year of my high school. It was awesome. Passing was 65, whereas everywhere else it had been 75. And I had masses of friends, and my girl who was my roommate was the same age as I because she had also skipped a year in school, and we became lifelong friends and are still friends, and it's wonderful. And I, those are the people that I still, you know, am in contact with. Fantastic. The people from my senior year, because the people in freshman, sophomore, and junior year were never very nice. So I graduated high school, and I had applied to college, and I was accepted at Northwestern and at Carnegie Tech. It was called Carnegie Tech then, and Catholic University, the three schools I had applied to because of their drama departments. But I also had auditioned for the Royal Academy in London, and my father had suggested I do that because he said, if you really want to be an actress, you should be properly trained. You bet. And they accepted me. But unfortunately, there was no space for me in the September term, and they had three terms a year. So I was accepted for the January term. So I spent the summer and the fall. I got a job. I worked at Saks Fifth Avenue up in White Plains and made some money and quit just before Christmas, which they were not happy about. <laughs> And early in January, my mother and I got on a plane. My father was making a movie in the Canary Islands. And so my mother and I got on a plane, and she took me to England and found me a place to live with some roommates. And there began my kind of grown-up adventure. And it really was a grown-up adventure. How incredible. Yeah. And they came to London as often as they could, and then they sold the house in Larchmont, which surprised me no end, because I said, wait a minute, what about when I graduate? Yeah. Where am I going to go? <laughs> and they said, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. You're on your own. I was only 17 years old wow. when I went to England, because I was a year younger than everybody. So I graduated from RADA at 19 and a half, because it was a two-and-a-half-year program, and came back to this country I was actually offered a job in England by John Neville, who was running the Nottingham Playhouse at the time. I auditioned for him, and he said, yes, I think we have a space for you. And I said, I have to tell you, I'm an American. (laughs) And his face kind of fell, and he went, oh, that's not good. He said, look, if you can get a work permit, he said, you have a job. And I said, thank you very much. And I called my father and cried and said, I need a work permit. (laughs) And he was very kind, and he contacted all kinds of wonderful people, but it was not possible. Wow. Because in order to get a work permit to stay in England at that time, 
they had to be able to say there was no one in England who could possibly play those parts. <laughs> you know, and no one was willing to take a, a chance like that. Sure. So, you know. Would would but, you have, would you have stayed there forever, or, or were you yes. always coming home? No, I would have stayed. I loved it. My I goodness. loved it so much, and and I think I would have had I gotten the job at Nottingham. That would have been probably two or three years, and then I hopefully gone to another rep company. You and bet. Hopefully, you know. And, and that I, would have been your life. That would have been my life. I was wow. in England. Yeah. So you know things work out as they're meant to. Of course. And I came back here, and I stayed with the Kerrs for a couple of months, and then I auditioned for the Milwaukee Repertory Theater, and this was in August. They had their whole season all set up, and then whoever the lady who was playing all their leading roles got, I guess, a better job, but quit and said, I'm not coming. And they were kind of frantically looking for somebody to play all these incredibly fabulous parts. And my agent called me, and he said, look, they're looking for somebody about 28 years old with a great deal of experience and they're willing to pay top dollar, which was $200 a week. And I said, that's cool. I'm 20 years old. I was just barely 20 then. And I said, I have no experience. My agent said, doesn't matter. He said, put your hair up so you look more grown up, put on a black dress, and go. And I went, and they auditioned me, and were kind of surprised that I had actually memorized the piece that I did. The first production they were doing was Electra, Sophocles Electra. So I memorized a whole speech from it. And they said, wow, you got the job. And they, you know, wanted all the particulars. And I said, you know, <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, 20 years old. And they went, oh, okay, fine. You're not going to get $200 a week, but we'll, we'll give you the job. You'll get minimum, which was, I think, 100 and five or a hundred and seven dollars a week and wow. then they take taxes out of that. Sure. But still it was a great job. Although back in those days that was a chunk of money still. It was fine. I could live on that. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. I went to the apartment and I did and I got to play some of the best parts ever written for women. I stayed there three years and we did summer stock in the summer. You know, I played parts that I was far too young for but it was the most unbelievable training ground, and it was what I had trained for. It was theater. I started with Electra, and then we did, I can't even remember, oh, with the, uh, Desdemona, and I had a gobbler I played when I was 20 years old. Mm. I, I, I mean, I, I can't even list all of them. Every, every, every year I played like five enormous leading roles. And one of the great perks of the whole thing the Lunts, Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine, lived near Milwaukee at Alfred Lunt's family's home in Genesee Depot. So every year we did a production in their honor, and they very graciously always came and said very sweet things. And so I always played the Lynn Fontaine part, <laughs> and that was kind of awesome. And my father had been friends with the Lunts, so I got to meet them. They wow. were unbelievably warm and lovely people, lovely, just lovely. That was a real honor. So I spent three years in Milwaukee, and then I went to Houston to the Alley Theater for a year. Oh, my, okay. I had a lot of fun there. And then I took six months off and went home to visit my mother and father. I had been married in Milwaukee at the end of my second year there to a lovely fellow, really nice guy, but we had totally different ambitions. And he kind of wanted to stay in Milwaukee for the rest of his life, and I didn't, so we separated. That was kind of amicable, I think. 
And so I went home for about six months and spent some time with my folks, which was very nice. I'd been working solidly for three years. Sure. And then I came to New York in January of 1971. I was immediately offered the role of Desdemona in Buffalo for a winter run. Can I tell you the coldest place on <laughs> earth is Buffalo in the winter? Yep. Oh, God, it was cold. I went there in January and I think came back very early in March. But just before I left, I went and met a lady named Joan Dincheco, who was the casting director for ABC Daytime. And she said, look, I'd like to put you on tape. I would like the producer to see you. She said, you're totally wrong for this part that I'm giving you. <laughs> but I want her to see you on tape. And I said, great. And I told her I was going to go to Buffalo for, you know, a lifetime of six weeks. <laughs> and so I did an audition with another actor for All My Children, the part that was eventually played by Susan Blanchard, Nurse Mary Kennicott. But the producer obviously thought something was there. So as soon as I got back, they called and they said, we'd like you to meet with the director and rehearse a scene and then do it for the producer. And I said, okay, fine. And nobody would tell me anything about it. My agent was on vacation, and this was like on Thursday, and he wasn't coming back till Tuesday. And his assistant said, on Monday morning, you have to go and meet with David Pressman at ABC, and he'll rehearse you in the scene, and then you have to do the scene on Tuesday. And I said, fine, okay. So I went, and the scene was between Vicky and Steve. And, you know, I said, so is this the character? And they went, no, 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 this isn't the character you're reading for at all. Uh, it's somebody, it's another character. But it's just know, a scene. It's just a scene to do because it's a new character. And I said, okay, fine, and we rehearsed. I rehearsed with Bernie Grant, who played Steve, and came back the next morning, and I called my agent. I'm, the audition was at 11 o'clock, I remember that. And I called my agent at 10 o'clock from the payphone at ABC because, knowing me, I was incredibly early. <laughs> and I said, look, I'm doing an audition, because he had just got back from vacation. He said, yes, I heard you're auditioning for One Life to Live. And I said, yes. And he said, so what's the part? I said, I don't know. They haven't told me. It's a new character. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, it's a scene between Vicky and Steve. And he said, hmm. He said, when the audition is over, come down to my office. So I did. I did the audition, and there was terrible silence in the room, and I left. And Bernie Grant was so cute. As we left, he kind of he didn't know where to look, and he said, um, you you want to get a cup of coffee or something? And I said, I said no, thank you. I'm going to my. He went, oh, good, good. Okay, well, see ya. And off he went. And I thought, well, I screwed that up royally. And I went to my agent's office and I was chatting with him. And he asked about the audition. And then his phone rang and he answered it. And he said, you know, yes, okay, fine, no, no, and about said no about 17 times and then hung up. And we continued chatting about whatever we had been chatting about for a few minutes. And then he said, by the way, that was One Life to Live. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, you got the job. And I was stunned. I mean, I, I could not have been more stunned. And in my brain, all these thoughts were racing through my brain. I said, okay, oh, I've got the job. I've got a job. I've got a job on television. I don't know anything about television. I'd never been on television. And I thought, okay, I won't start soon. I'll probably start in a month. I can lose five pounds. I can learn the lines. I can do this, that, and the other. And the next words out of his mouth were, you, you start, start tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> and I went, whoa, whoa. 
And then I said, what was all the no's at the end? And he said, the girl who's playing the part right now is my client. And he said, (laughs) they're going to let her go. And she doesn't know. And they want me to tell her. Oh, my goodness. And he said, and I said, no, you tell her. I said, so, I said, I'm playing Vicky? And he said, yes. And I said, well, who is she? What's he said? That's the lead. And my heart was pounding, and I was in a total panic. Because I had never been on television. He said, go up there now, get the script, and you show up tomorrow morning, and rehearsal starts at 8.30, and he gave me all the information. And I spent the rest of the day in an absolute (laughs) fog. And I was living with my high school friend, Polly Seitz, who was a nurse at New York Hospital. And I went back to Polly's, and I told her, and I said, oh, and she said, oh, that's fantastic. And I said, yeah, I can get an apartment now because I have a job. (laughs) And this was literally, I mean, I had just come back from Buffalo. I think I'd been back five days. Wow. And I ran home, called my parents. My father was so excited. And I got the script, and I went home, and I memorized it word for word because that's how I had been trained. Of course. And I was told to go to – we didn't have rehearsal space at the ABC studios. They were rehearsing in an apartment at an apartment complex called the Dorchester on 68th off of Broadway. So I showed up there. And I didn't really know where I was going or what I was doing, but they said it's apartment, you know, whatever, on the 8th floor or wherever, and it starts at 8.30. So, you know, knowing me, I was there at 8 o'clock and fully dressed, fully made up, and the door wasn't open. It was locked. So I sat in the hallway going over my script, and all the people who actually lived in the building were all walking past me wondering why is this child sitting on the floor with a script in her hand. Finally, at 8.30, somebody showed up and unlocked the door and let me in and said, you know, who are you? What are you doing? And I said, my name is Erica Slazak. And they said, okay, uh, what are you playing? I said, Vicky. No. And there was the kind of pause, and everybody said, how could you be playing Vicky? And I said, well, I got the job yesterday. My goodness. And the only people that the producers had informed were Lynn Benish, who played Meredith, and Ernie Graves, who played Victor, because my scenes were with them. And they had called them that night and said, look, the actress who had played Vicky is being replaced, and the new girl starts tomorrow. Yeah, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) And they were so nice and so warm and welcoming, and I was in such a panic. And thank God David Pressman was directing. And he really helped me. They wanted to do this switch very quickly because they were starting the whole new storyline of Steve and Vicky and Marcy, uh, Vicky's secretary. I don't know how old you are, whether you watched in those days, but it was a very long arc where Marcy was trying to gaslight Vicky and she wanted Steve for herself. And I don't know, it was a long story. And that's why the switch was made that abruptly. And I never knew who the actress was who had played it until I started working there. And I asked, and they said her name was Joanne Dorian. And I didn't meet her until many years later. And she couldn't have been nicer. Wow. Apparently they you know, called her up at the end of the day on Tuesday and said, don't come back tomorrow, <laughs> which is kind of cruel. That is terrible. That is terrible. Yeah. They paid her off for whatever they owed her, I hope. But that was the beginning. And thank God for Ernie and Lynn Benish and Sidney Andrews, who was our stage manager. And my hairdresser, Willis Hanchett, <laughs> who literally all four of them held my hand and got me through the day. <laughs> and David Pressman, God bless him. 
taught me everything about working on television. And it takes a long time to learn that when sure. you've been working on the stage and projecting. Of course. And I had been working mostly in the round, and where you never stop moving. And all of a sudden to be told, stand still and stop moving your head and stop talking so loudly. And every time I moved my head, they would say, you're leaving the frame of the shot because my gestures were, everything was still so large. So it took a while to learn. And they were just lovely, just lovely. And I was so happy there. And after two years, they said, we'd like you to stay. We'll give you five more dollars. And I said, I'll happy to stay. Here's my, you know. And I stayed and I stayed. And every day going to work was an adventure and exciting and thrilling and working with lovely actors and every day something different. And I thought, I just, I've, you know, I'm, I'm like a pig in, you know what, in heaven. <laughs> I was so happy. And then I did an off-Broadway play in 1973 or four. This is awful. I can't remember. And that's when I met my husband, Brian. We did the play together, and we became friends. And after about three years of really being good buds and pals, we sort of got together, and then we got married. Then Michael was born, and it was awesome because I got to go home every night, and I still had this fabulous job, and I could go home, and I didn't have to travel. And that turned into forty, nearly forty-one wow. years. And do they do they pass by in a blink? I mean, does it all just become a blur at some point? Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> People periodically send me clips, you know, from YouTube uh-huh. of old scenes and whatever. Erin Torpy actually sent me one. She started when I think she was seven. Wow. Yeah, uh, she played Jessica. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But the clip was when she was about thirteen, I think. And I looked at it and I thought, my God, I remember it. I don't remember the hair or the clothes, but I looked pretty good. And I said, the scenes were really good. And I mean that. They were good. You know, we made everything. We worked hard. We made it work. We made it believable. You know, it's your job as an actor to sell it. And we did. We did. And Erin was so sweet and cute. Oh, my God. Made me cry to look at it. But, you know, I've, I've... I have tapes over the... Unfortunately, they erased everything. ABC erased everything from like the first, I don't know, seven or eight years. So none of that exists anymore except a very few pieces that people kind of individually got a hold of. Yes. Because they were those big, fat, two-inch tapes. Uh-huh. And they wanted to reuse them, so they would just wipe them and reuse them. And who knew there would be something like YouTube 40 years later and, you know, all this yeah, digital stuff? I mean, exactly, who knew? Exactly. Who knew back then? Who knew? My God, we didn't have cell phones. You know, you had to stop and go to a payphone. There, you know, it it it's gone by in a blur, and yet it's been the most wonderful and rewarding experience ever. And anyone who has not been in a daytime series can possibly appreciate sure. the happiness, the comfort level, the security that you have, and the freedom to try every day and be better and be different. It was wonderful, especially in the beginning when we had rehearsal. After <laughs> we went to an hour, we never had rehearsal. You know, we'd have blocking rehearsal, but sure. the rehearsal, we, we were pretty much left to our own devices to run the lines with the other actors, and the directors had very little time to give notes. But, you know, I thank God I'd been there for a while at that <laughs> point, and I was more comfortable. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. 
you know, given the given the talent that runs through your bloodline. I mean, not only your father. I don't know how many people know that your grandfather was a oh yeah a famous yeah. opera tenor back yeah. in Europe. Yes. Oh yes. You know, it's funny. Meryl Streep's daughters are actresses. Tom Hanks' son is an actor. You know, just right. as James Taylor's son is a singer-songwriter and Bob Dylan's son. Right. Uh, not that I mean this in a bad way, but were you doomed to be an actress? I mean, was there any way that that Walter Slezak's daughter wasn't going to be an actress? Um, look, I have a sister who's an attorney, and I have a brother who wanted to be a director but never had the patience for it, so he became a pilot. And he lives in Seattle, and he's sort of retired, but he flew small planes. My sister never had any inclination that she would want it to be an actress. Never, ever thought that she would want to do that. And she didn't. And I, from the moment I think I was born, it's all I wanted to do. Wow. I wanted to pretend. I wanted to play. You know, and I was a typical little girl with the petticoat wrapped up around me, pretending to be a ballet dancer and singing and dancing and putting makeup on and, you know, being a little girl. I always wanted to do it. And my father, when I was about 14, I think, he sat me down and he told me everything bad you could possibly know about being in the show business. The heartache and the, you know, sure. and the rejection and how awful you feel and, and how disappointing it is and, you know, the misery of it and not working and all that. And he said, you have to be prepared for all of that. And he said, and because you're my daughter, you cannot just sort of slide in and say, oh, I'm Walter Slayback's daughter, you know, I'll get this job. He said, you have to work harder than anybody because you have to prove yourself. And he said, I think if you really want to do this, you need to think about it. And I did, and I said, I really want to do this. And he was the one who suggested a proper drama school. You know, in those days, that was 1963. It was not that necessary to go to college if you wanted to be an actress. Sure. And I was accepted at all these colleges, and I could have gone. And that's, I think, the one regret I have. I wish that I had gone to college for four years and then gone to RADA because I missed those formative years. Of course. Of socialization and et cetera. But at the same time, if I, ha- I auditioned for RADA, if I had said, no, I'll be back in four years, they probably would have said, mm. <laughs> And I didn't want to lose that opportunity. And thank God they accepted me when they did. Wow. I I had the most wonderful time there. I learned I learned everything except television. <laughs> and that I learned from David. And that I learned from David. It was a marvelous training. Just marvelous. And I came back with the most wonderful British accent for three years to lose it. But I had intended to learn it. You know, I went there to learn sure. it. And to master it. And I did. I did three years of rep and slowly thought, well, I better kind of lose this because it's going to limit me. (laughs) Was it difficult for your father to recognize your talent as an actress? I mean, was it difficult for him to look at you and not see his daughter but see Erica? Probably. Probably. I never asked him that. I know that I was in a high school play (laughs) when I was a junior in high school, and we did the lute song. And I was playing a character called Cy Young, who's a man. Mary Martin had actually done it on Broadway, had played that part. Why they always cast a woman in it, I don't know. But in our case, it's because it was an all-girls school. And my father, after the performance, he said, I see something there. He said, I moved me, you touched me. He said there was something incredibly sorrowful and sad And I thought, well, maybe I can do it then. And then when I was accepted at RADA, you know, I thought, well, maybe I can. And I had a wonderful time at RADA. He 
he was very practical. He was the one who said to me, these magazines and these, you know, the fans, they tell you, oh, you're the greatest thing on earth. You're famous, you're famous, you're famous. He said, no, you're not. He said, you're a working actress and you should be happy to be a working actress. And don't let any of that go to your head because it will destroy you. And I've seen it happen. Good for him. When you start believing your own publicity, that you're actually paying somebody to write about you. And yet you believe it. That's (laughs) kind of stupid. You know, we're all just, we're the same people. We just express ourselves in different ways. Of course. And have a slightly different talent. I have a son who is so smart, it's freaking scary. (laughs) And he has a master's degree from Oxford University in business administration. He's just looking, he's now looking for a new job. But his talent is so foreign to me. Because it's all in math and science and computers, and he's so smart. I don't know how he feels about my talent, but it's foreign to him because he would say, "Oh, I don't want to be an actor." Of course, you know. So we all have different talents. But your daughter is an actress, yes. Your daughter, my daughter did follow is your an percent. actress, yes. She, well, she's a really good bartender right now, but you know, <laughs> yes, she is an actress, and she will be a successful actress. I hope. She's had some life experience now which helps enormously. And she's very funny and very quick. And her talent is in a whole other area. She can do comedy. She really can. And she's funny. And then my husband, who's a wonderful actor but a brilliant singer, I never open my mouth around him because, you know, I'm not a singer. I wish that that was something I had inherited from my grandfather, but I didn't. You know, I remember Vicky doing a little karaoke on One Life a couple of times. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was about yeah, the extent. Jill Phelps. Yeah. Jill Phelps came to me one day, and she said, you sing, don't you? And she was walking as she, as she passed me. I said, no, I don't. She no. said, sure you do. Everybody sings. I said, no, I don't sing. She went, yeah, you do, you do. And she vanished. And the next thing I know, I'm in the bar at, at uh, the, the, what the hell was the bar? The Crossroads. The Crossroads. Yep. Doing karaoke. <laughs> and... I don't know. I guess I pulled it off. I don't know. Vicky's not supposed to be a singer, so she didn't have to sound good. But all those wonderful extras we had there that day, and Mark Derwin, who was the bartender, Ben, they were just so helpful and supportive, you know. And I said, just keep applauding and and laughing, and then you'll cover up the sound of my singing. And then I got to do I Will Survive as Nikki on the sofa in the sunroom. You know, it's 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 crazy to even say this, and I know it, but, you know, I've always felt this odd connection with you, and I didn't find out until years later, uh, years after the fact, that we are both survivors of parental suicide. I was 12 years old when my mother passed, oh. and, and you were already an adult when your father passed. And, you know, don't let me get too personal with this, but I would no. love to hear whatever you feel comfortable sharing about your experience as a survivor of such a wretched event. It is a wretched event. This is very hard to talk about. I adored my father, and... I did not know this until my mother told me, but she told me that he had always said that if he found out he had a terminal illness, he would end his own life because he absolutely refused to be a burden to anyone and just loathed the idea of spending his ending days in a wheelchair or in a home. And I think he realized that he had the beginnings of Alzheimer's. Wow. We all kind of saw it a little bit. You know, you'd say something to him, and he would ask you the same question a minute later. You know, in the beginning, you say, I, you just asked me that. <laughs> the look across his face was horrible. Absolutely. 
And when he took his own life, it was the worst night of my life. And it destroyed my mother. She died a year later. She had asthma, and it just progressively got worse and worse Mm. and worse until she had a massive, what they call cardiac asthma attack. Her heart stopped. Um, For a long time, I was very, very angry with him because he took my mother from me as well. And, you know, she was young. She was only 68 years old. I've come to understand over the years that his unhappiness must have been so great. And apparently there were other medical issues going on that he he had no choice. This was something he felt he had to do. It leaves such a hole sure, in, of course. in people's lives. That can never be filled by anything or anyone. No. no. You know, I, I would imagine that you can empathize as an actress because as an actor you're uh, dependent on your memory and so when you when you can sense that going I, oh it must it must just level you yeah he just was he you know my father was a very healthy president the only thing that was ever wrong with him in his whole life was he broke his leg and boy was he a baby wow. you know <laughs> he was so healthy always in spite of being so overweight he was healthy and strong and in control he did everything they had a very very old fashioned european marriage. He loved her dearly and respected her, but he took care of everything. He paid the bills. If the plumber needed to be called, he called the plumber. My mother did the marketing and did the shopping, and she wrote checks, and that's all she knew about money. That's all she needed to know, because he never bothered her with it. I'm sure she knew that they had enough money to live. Yes. She wasn't stupid. She was very smart. (laughs) But, you know, in a very old-fashioned way, the husband did everything. Sure. And he did. And so when he died, so suddenly and so quickly, she was completely lost. lost. And thank God my sister was an attorney and spent, you know, days and hours with her going over everything and assuring her that she was fine financially, that, you know, she would be able to live comfortably and not worry. But she always did. My sister lived in Denver. And Mommy would fly out to see her. And she would find the cheapest way to go because she thought, you know, if I spend $250, that's $250 I don't have anymore. So she found a way that she'd have to change flights three times and it only cost 150 I mean, it was it was crazy. But she didn't sort of understand the whole business of, yeah. of income. When you have money in the bank, you get income and stocks and things, income, because she'd never had to deal with it. She was just starting to turn the corner and become a little self-sufficient and resilient. Oh, she was always self-sufficient, yeah, but she started to turn the corner and get better. And then she was in Europe with a lady friend, and they were at the opera in Bayreuth. And as I said, she was an asthmatic, and the Bayreuth Opera House at that time, that was 1984, was not air-conditioned. And it was a horrible, close, humid, thunderstormy night. And the heat in the opera house was just, I guess, unbearable for her. And she had a terrible asthma attack. And uh, they took her to the hospital. She died. Wow. Horrible. Well, I'm sorry that your mother passed away when you were you were so young. That must just have been horrendous. Well, you know, it's it, it's it's one of those funny things. You know, it's 
I, and I'm sure you know this to be true too. When when it's your life, when it's the only thing you know, I mean, you, you have no choice but to envelop it into your life and go on. Yeah. But you know, I uh, I'll tell you that I started watching your show in 1988, just a couple of months before she passed, and that first year, and for many years after that, of course, but especially that first year, I clung to your show and to you guys. You know, that year is a giant blur in large part, but yeah. I can tell you every single thing that happened that year on One Life because I would come home from school. I would turn on the VCR tape, and it was an hour a day that I didn't have to think about the new school that I hated or the family mess or any of it. You guys were a godsend. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Very difficult. You know, I I have to ask you about one of my all-time favorite storylines in the history of the show, which took place during that period, and it was roundly criticized by the critics, but... I'll tell you, for a 12-year-old boy looking to escape his own life for a while, this was big and crazy and fabulous and still my favorite. Eterna? Eterna, the underground city. Eterna! (laughs) Give me a good Eterna story, please. You know, Paul Roush was our producer. Absolutely. And Paul is a brilliant producer. But Paul gets bored. (laughs) And when he gets bored, you know, he said, come on, let's do something fun like Eterna. And we did. And, you know, frankly, we had a good time doing it. It was a little ridiculous. More than a little, my darling. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It's okay. <laughs> the thing about daytime, really about any show, any character in a book or a play or a musical or a television show or anything, if you're invested in the character, they'll take you anywhere and you'll go with them. You bet. And the story was a little... Kind of silly, and you know, I discovered I had yet another husband that I didn't know about, Roger Gordon, and a baby you didn't remember having, and a baby I didn't remember having. Um, we went across the street, and they built a whole incredible set for us over at TV One, and you know, they threw dirt on us at the end, and everybody got pneumonia, and it was. But you know, and you I got to act with your husband, did you not? No, I never did. He was on a screen only because he okay. played Anton Gordon, yeah. who had sort of yeah. invented Eterna. And he was only used on the screen in a video, speaking to the people of Eterna. <laughs> uh, so I never actually got to work with him then. You know what? I, I know it was silly, but we had fun. It was great. I, I tell you what, it was so crazy. And you and Larry Pine and Dennis Parlato and, and all you guys, you played that stuff like it was Shakespeare. I mean, it was fabulous. Well, you have to. <laughs> That's the one thing. As silly as some stories are, you have to give them the credit. You have to invest in it, and you have to play it straight. Because if you don't, it's not going to work. And we wanted it to work. It was so silly, it had to work. I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but was there ever any real temptation for you to leave and see what else was out there for you as an actress? Yes and no. Every time a contract negotiation came up, I would think, should I go? And then I would think about my life and my children and my husband and and how lucky I was to be able to go home every night. I didn't work five days a week, not all the time. I never missed school play or a field day or a Christmas concert or anything at school because ABC was always very good to me, and they let me have those days off. And I thought, if I leave now and I start going to California... I've got to uproot my family and move Mm -hmm. everybody out there or be away from them, which was just anathema to me. And I might not find another job. You know, to go out there on spec when you're already in your 30s or 40s, (laughs) it's iffy. I knew that people came from daytime with a stigma. You bet. And that, 
to this day pisses me off more than anything. <laughs> because if those people ever tried to do daytime, no question about it, they couldn't. We have had a lot of people who came from California who are totally blown away by how hard the work is doing it all in one day. It's just impossible. And from the opposite side, you look at people like Kim Zimmer who left to go out there and couldn't get arrested out there for whatever odd reason. And, and you Precisely. Know, and Kim is fabulous. You bet. So those things would come up. And ABC was always very generous to me. They paid me a very nice salary. I was happy with it. I could pay my bills, you know. Brian was working when he when it, Brian was wonderful because we had two children at home and he was still spending time in California and he said this is ridiculous he said I didn't wait all these years to have babies to be three thousand miles away from them so we sat down and we had a long talk and he said I'm going to come home you have a very nice contract you love working and I don't want to take that away from you and I will come home and I will work when there's work but I will be there for the kids because we didn't have kids to have them be raised by nannies, as wonderful as nannies are. And we always had one, but, you know, Brian was there most of the time, almost all the time. He picked them up from school. He took them to swimming. He did the homework with them. He brought them their snacks. He was there. And if I was home in time to make dinner, I did. If not, the nanny had to make dinner. That's all, because that's the one thing Brian doesn't do. He doesn't cook. But, you know... Yes, I would think about it, and I would think, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go that's better than this? Yes, maybe I could have become a huge star in the theater. Who knows? So I'd be gone every night. I'd come home. I'd have to sleep until 11 o'clock. I wouldn't see the kids in the morning. I'd see them for maybe an hour, two hours in the afternoon, and then I'd be off to the theater. And that didn't appeal to me. And I was making a nice living and loving, loving, loving what I did every Absolutely. day. There was no reason no good reason to leave. I wasn't that greedy. And I wasn't that ambitious. I mean, ambitious, yes, to do the best work I could do. But I was very happy doing it, doing it. Well, I tell you. Well, that feels like as good a stopping point as any for tonight, I suppose. And that's just the beginning, y'all. Part one is in the books, and part two is a mere 22 hours and change away. Tomorrow night... Same bat time, same bat channel. Queen Erica Slazak returns right here to Brandon's Buzz for more fun and frolic with her reflections on some of her famous co-stars, including Robin Strasser, Phil Carey, Nathan Fillion, and so many more, as well as Paul Roush, Brian Franz, Jeff Quatton, and so much more awaits you tomorrow night. I guarantee you, and I'm not just saying this, you'll kick yourself if you miss as much as a second of the rest of this conversation, which is why you need to have your behind here tomorrow night, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific, blogtalkradio.com slash for the epic conclusion of my exclusive chat with the one and only Erica Slazak. So that's a wrap for Brandon's Buzz right now. If you're listening, then you clearly know how to find the show. But in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is home base for this show. From there, you can see what's on the show, what has been on the show, what's coming on the show. All of the episodes are there, archived. It is truly home base, mission control for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it is blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page at brandonsbuzz.com is a blue button marked radio. Click that. That takes you to a full listing, a full radio archive. Every episode of this show is in the radio archive at Brandon's Buzz. This is episode number 101. This and all previous 100 episodes 
available in the Radio Archive at Brandon's Buzz, as I just told you. Uh, so check that out as well. I'm also on iTunes, guys. I am on iTunes. Type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to find my Puzzle Piece logo. Click there. There you can download individual episodes of this program as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your device whenever you log in. So listen, I'm all over. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I assure you something will pop up that points in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me. Hope you all come on back tomorrow night for part two of this conversation, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Matthews from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check it out. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs>